Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Simon Anthony and Torty Talks. This reading is in no way intended to breach anyone's copyright, but I think it's so good I'm going to risk it anyway. This is Simon Anthony reading The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. We are about to enter the restaurant at the end of the universe, but first of all we've got to get past the following emergency. Chapter 32 Emergency! Emergency! blurred the klaxons throughout Magrathia. Hostile ship has landed on planet. Armed intruders in Section 8A. Defence stations! Defence stations! The two mice sniffed irritably round the fragments of their glass transports where they lay shattered on the floor. Damnation! muttered Frankie Mouse. All our fuss over two pounds of earthling brain! He scuttled round and about, his pink eyes flashing, his fine white coat bristling with static. The only thing we can do now, said Benji, crouching and stroking his whiskers in thought, is to try and fake a question. Invent one that will sound plausible. Difficult, said Frankie, he thought. How about what's yellow and dangerous? Benji considered this for a moment. No, no, good, he said. Doesn't fit the answer. They sank into silence for a few seconds. All right, said Benji. What do you get if you multiply six by seven? No, no, no. Too literal, too factual, said Frankie. Wouldn't sustain the punter's interest. Again they thought. Then Frankie said, Here's a thought. How many roads must a man walk down? Ah, said Benji. Ah, now that does sound promising. He rolled the phrase around a little. Yes, he said. That's excellent. Sounds very significant without actually tying you down to meaning anything at all. How many roads must a man walk down? Forty-two. Excellent. Excellent. That'll fox him. Frankie, baby, we are made. They performed a scampering dance in their excitement. Near them on the floor lay several rather ugly men who had been hit about the head with some heavy design awards. Half a mile away, four figures pounded up a corridor looking for a way out. They emerged into a wide open plan computer bay. They glanced about wildly. Which way do you reckon, Zaphod? said Ford. To Wild Gase, I'd say down there, said Zaphod, running off down to the right between the computer bank and the wall. As the others started after him, he was brought up short by a kilo-zap energy bolt that crackled through the air inches in front of him and fried a small section of the adjacent wall. A voice and a loud hailer said, OK, Beagle Brox, hold it right there. We've got you covered. Cops, hissed Zaphod, and span round in a crouch. You want to try a guess at all, Ford? OK, this way, said Ford, and the four of them ran down a gangway between two computer banks. At the end of the gangway appeared a heavily armoured and spacesuited figure waving a vicious kilo-zap gun. We don't want to shoot you, Beeble Brooks, shouted the figure. Suits me fine, shouted Zaphod back and dived down a wide gap between two data processing units. The others swerved in behind him. There are two of them, said Trillian. We're cornered. They squeezed themselves down into an angle between a large computer bank and the wall. They held their breath and waited. Suddenly the air exploded with energy bolts as both the cops opened fire on them simultaneously. Hey, they're shooting at us, said Arthur, crouching in a tight ball. I thought they said they didn't want to do that. Yeah, I thought they said that, agreed Ford. Zaphod stuck a head up for a dangerous moment. Hey, he said, I thought you said you didn't want to shoot us. They ducked again. They waited. After a moment, a voice replied, It isn't easy being a cop. What did he say? whispered Ford in astonishment. 
He said it isn't easy being a cop. Well, surely that's his problem, isn't it? I'd have thought so. Ford shouted back. Hey, listen, I think we've got enough problems of our own having you shooting at us, so if you could avoid laying your problems on us as well, I think we'd all find it easy to cope. Another pause, and then the loud hailer again. Now see here, guys, said the voice on the loud hailer. You're not dealing with any dumb two-bit trigger-pumping morons with low hairlines, little piggy eyes, and no conversation. We're a couple of intelligent, caring guys you'd probably quite like if you met us socially. I don't go round gratuitously shooting people and then bragging about it afterwards in seedy space ranger bars, like some cops I could mention. I go round shooting people gratuitously and then I agonize about it afterwards for hours to my girlfriend. And I write novels, chimed in the other cop, though I haven't had any of them published yet, so I better warn you, I'm in a mean mood. Ford's eyes popped halfway out of their sockets. Who are these guys, he said. Dunno, said Zaphod. I think I preferred it when they were shooting. So you're going to come out quietly, shouted one of the cops again, or are you going to let us blast you out? Which would you prefer, shouted Ford. A millisecond later, the air about them started to fry again, as bolt after bolt of kilo zap hurled itself into the computer bank in front of them. The fusillade continued for several seconds at unbearable intensity. When it stopped, there were a few seconds of near quietness, and the echoes died away. You still there? called out one of the cops. Yes, they called back. We didn't enjoy doing that at all, shouted the other cop. We could tell, shouted Ford. Now listen to this, Beeble and you better listen good. Why? shouted back Zaphod. Because, shouted the cop, it's going to be very intelligent and quite interesting and humane. Now either you all give yourselves up now and let us beat you up a bit, though not very much, of course, because we're firmly opposed to needless violence, or we blow up this entire planet and possibly one or two others we noticed on our way out here. But that's crazy, cried Trillian. They wouldn't do that. Oh, yes, we would, shouted the cop. Wouldn't we? He asked the other one. Oh, yeah, we'd have to. No question, the other one called back. But why? demanded Trillian. Because there are some things you have to do, even if you are an enlightened liberal cop who knows all about sensitivity and everything. I just don't believe these guys, muttered Ford, shaking his head. One cop shouted to the other. Shall we shoot them again for a bit? Yeah, why not? They let fly another electric barrage. The heat and noise was quite fantastic. Slowly the computer bank was beginning to disintegrate. The front had almost all melted away, and thick rivulets of molten metal were winding their way back towards where they were squatting. They huddled further back and waited for the end. Chapter 33 But the end never came. At least not then. Quite suddenly the barrage stopped, and the sudden silence afterwards was punctuated by a group of strangled gurgles and thuds. The four stared at each other. What happened? asked Arthur. They stopped, said Zephog with a shrug. Why? Dunno. Do you want me to go and ask them? No. They waited. Hello? called out Arthur. No answer. That's odd. Perhaps it's a trap. They haven't the wit. What were those thuds? Don't know. They waited for a few more seconds. Right, said Ford. I'm going to have a look. 
He glanced round at the others. Is no one going to say, no, you can't possibly let me go instead? They all shook their heads. Oh, well, he said and stood up. For a moment, nothing happened. Then after a second or so, nothing continued to happen. Ford peered through the thick smoke that was billowing out of the burning computer. Cautiously, he stepped out into the open. Still, nothing happened. Twenty yards away, he could see dimly through the smoke the space-suited figure of one of the cops. He was lying in a crumpled heap on the ground. Twenty yards in the other direction lay the second man. No one else was anywhere to be seen. This struck Ford as being extremely odd. Slowly, nervously, he walked towards the first one. The body lay reassuringly still as he approached it and continued to lie reassuringly still as he reached it and put his foot down on the kilo zap gun that still dangled from its limp fingers. He reached down and picked it up, meeting no resistance. The cop was quite clearly dead. A quick examination revealed him to be from Blagyuan Kappa, he was a methane-breathing life-form dependent on his spacesuit for survival in a thin oxygen atmosphere of Magrathea. The tiny life-support system computer on his backpack appeared unexpectedly to have blown up. Ford poked around in it in considerable astonishment. These miniature suit computers usually had the full backup of the main computer back on the ship, with which they were directly linked through sub-ether. Such a system was fail-safe in all circumstances other than total feedback malfunction, which was unheard of. He hurried over to the other prone figure and discovered that exactly the same impossible thing had happened to him, presumably simultaneously. He called the others over to look. They came, shared his astonishment, but not his curiosity. Let's get shot out of this hole, said Zephod. If whatever I'm supposed to be looking for is here, I don't want it. He grabbed the second kilo-zap gun, blasted a perfectly harmless accounting computer, and rushed out into the corridor, followed by the others. He very nearly blasted hell out of an air car that stood waiting for them a few yards away. The air car was empty, but Arthur recognised it as belonging to Slarty Bartfast. It had a note from him, pinned to part of its sparse instrument panel. The note had an arrow drawn on it, pointing to one of the controls. It said... This is probably the best button to press. Chapter 34 The air car rocketed them at speeds in excess of R-17 through the steel tunnels that led out into the appalling surface of the planet, which was now in the grip of yet another drear morning twilight. Ghastly grey lights congeal on the land. R is a velocity measure defined as a reasonable speed of travel that is consistent with health, mental well-being, not being more than, say, five minutes late. It is therefore clearly an almost infinitely variable figure according to circumstance, since the first two factors vary not only with speed taken as an absolute, but also with awareness of the third factor. Unless handled with tranquility, this equation can result in considerable stress, ulcers, and even death. R17 is not a fixed velocity, but it is clearly far too fast. 
the aircraft flung itself through the air at R-17 and above, deposited them next to the heart of gold, which stood starkly on the frozen ground like a bleached bone, and then precipitately hurled itself back in the direction whence they had come, presumably on important business of his own. Shivering, the four of them stood and looked at the ship. Beside it stood another one. It is the Blagulon Kappa police craft. A bulbous, shark-like affair, slate-green in colour, and smothered with black-stenciled letters of varying degrees of size and unfriendliness. The letters informed anyone who cared to read them as to where the ship was from, what section of the police it was assigned to, and where the power feed should be connected. It seemed somehow unnaturally dark and silent, even for a ship whose two-man crew was at the moment lying asphyxiated in a smoke-filled chamber several miles beneath the ground. It is one of those curious things that it is impossible to explain or define, but one can sense when a ship is completely dead. Ford could sense it and found it most mysterious. A ship and two policemen seemed to have gone spontaneously dead. In his experience, the universe simply didn't work like that. The other three could sense it too, but they could sense the bitter cold even more, and hurried back inside the heart of gold, suffering from an acute attack of no curiosity. Ford stayed and went to examine the Blagulon ship. As he walked, he nearly tripped over an inert steel figure lying face down in the cold dust. Marvin, he exclaimed, what are you doing? Don't feel you have to take any notice of me, please, came a muffled drone. But how are you, metal man, said Ford, very depressed. What's up? I don't know, said Marvin. I've never been there. Why, said Ford, squatting down beside him and shivering, are you lying face down in the dust? It's a very effective way of being wretched said Marvin. Don't pretend you want to talk to me. I know you hate me. No, I don't. Yes, you do. Everybody does. It's part of the shape of the universe. I only have to talk to somebody and they begin to hate me. Even robots hate me. If you just ignore me, I expect I should probably go away. He jacked himself up onto his feet and stood resolutely facing the opposite direction. That ship hated me, he said dejectedly, indicating the police craft. That ship, said Ford in sudden excitement. What happened to it? Do you know? It hated me because I talked to it. You talked to it, exclaimed Ford. What do you mean you talked to it? Simple. I got very bored and depressed, so I went and plugged myself into its external computer feed. I talked to the computer at great length and explained my view of the universe to it, said Marvin. And what happened? pressed Ford. It committed suicide, said Marvin, and stalked off back to the heart of gold. Chapter 35 That night, as the heart of gold was busy putting a few light years between itself and the Horsehead Nebula, Zaphod lounged under the small palm tree on the bridge, trying to bang his brain into shape with massive pangalactic gargle blasters. Ford and Trillian sat in the corner, discussing life and matters arising from it, and Arthur took to his bed to flip through Ford's copy of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Since he was going to live in the place, he reasoned he'd better start finding out something about it. He came across this entry. 
He'd said, The history of every major galactic civilization tends to pass through three distinct and recognizable phases those of survival, inquiry, and sophistication, otherwise known as the how, why, and where phases. For instance, the first phase is characterized by the question, how can we eat? The second by the question, why do we eat? And the third by the question, where shall we have lunch? He got no further before the ship's intercom buzzed into life. Hey, Earthman, you hungry kid, said Zaphod's voice. Uh, well, yes, a little peckish, I suppose, said Arthur. Okay, baby, hold tight, said Zaphod. We'll take a quick bite at the restaurant at the end of the universe. The restaurant at the end of the universe. To Jane and James, with many thanks. To Geoffrey Perkins for achieving the improbable. To Paddy Kingsland, Lisa Brown and Alec Hale Munro for helping him. To John Lloyd for his help with the original Milliway script. To Simon Brett for starting the whole thing off to the Paul Simon album One Trick Pony, which I played incessantly while writing the book, Five Years is Far Too Long, and with very special thanks to Jackie Graham for infinite patience, kindness and food in adversity. There is a theory which states that if ever anyone discovers exactly what the universe is for and why it is here, it will instantly disappear and be replaced by something even more bizarre and inexplicable. There is another theory which states that this has already happened. Chapter 1 The Story So Far In the beginning, the universe was created. This has made a lot of people very angry and has been widely regarded as a bad move. Many races believe that it was created by some sort of god, though the Jatravarted people of Vilvoltal VI believe that the entire universe was in fact sneezed out of the nose of a being called the Great Green Arkelsesia. The Jatravartids, who live in perpetual fear of the time they call the coming of the Great White Handkerchief, are small blue creatures with more than 50 arms each, who are therefore unique in being the only race in history to have invented the aerosol deodorant before the wheel. However, the Great Green Arkelsesia theory is not widely accepted outside of Viltvodal VI, and so, the universe being the puzzling place it is, other explanations are constantly being sought. For instance, a race of hyper-intelligent pan-dimensional beings once built themselves a gigantic supercomputer called Deep Thought to calculate once and for all the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe and everything. For seven and a half million years, Deep Thought computed and calculated and in the end announced that the answer was in fact 42. And so another, even bigger computer had to be built to find out what the actual question was. And this computer, which was called the Earth, was so large that it was frequently mistaken for a planet, especially by the strange ape-like beings who roamed its surface, totally unaware that they were simply part of a gigantic computer program. And this is very odd because without that fairly simple and obvious piece of knowledge, nothing that ever happened on the Earth could possibly make the slightest bit of sense. 
Sadly, however, just before the critical moment of readout, the earth was unexpectedly demolished by the Vogons to make way, so they claimed, for a new hyperspace bypass. And so all hope of discovering a meaning for life was lost forever. Or so it would seem. Two of their strange ape-like creatures survived. Arthur Dent escaped at the very last moment because an old friend of his, Fort Prefect, suddenly turned out to be from a small planet in the vicinity of Beetlejuice and not from Guildford as he had hitherto claimed. And more to the point, he knew how to hitch rides on flying saucers. Trisha Macmillan, or Trillian, had skipped the planet several months earlier with Zaphod Beeblebrox, the then president of the galaxy. Two survivors. They are all that remains of the greatest experiment ever conducted, to find the ultimate question and the ultimate answer of life, the universe and everything. And less than half a million miles from where their starship is drifting lazily through the inky blackness of space, a Vogon ship is moving slowly towards them. Chapter 2 like all Vogon ships, it looked as if it had been not so much designed as congealed. The unpleasant yellow lumps and edifices which protruded from it at unsightly angles would have disfigured the looks of most ships, but in this case that was sadly impossible. Uglier things must have been spotted in the skies, but not by reliable witnesses. In fact, to see anything much uglier than a Vogon ship, you would have to go inside and look at a Vogon. If you're wise, however, this is precisely what you will avoid doing because the average Vogon will not think twice before doing something so pointlessly hideous to you that you will wish you had never been born, or, if you are a clearer-minded thinker, that the Vogon had never been born. In fact, the average Vogon probably wouldn't even think once. They're simple-minded, thick-willed, slug-brained creatures, and thinking is not really something they're cut out for. Anatomical analysis of the Vogon reveals that its brain was originally a badly deformed, misplaced and dyspeptic liver. The fairest thing you can say about them, then, is that they know what they like, and what they like generally involves hurting people, and wherever possible, getting very angry. One thing they don't like is leaving a job unfinished, particularly this Vogon, and particularly, for various reasons, this job. This Vogon was Captain Prostechnik Vogon Jeltz of the Galactic Hyperspace Planning Council, and it was he who had had the job of demolishing the so-called planet Earth. He heaved his monumentally vile body around in his ill-fitting, slimy seat and stared at the monitor screen on which the starship Heart of Gold was being systematically scanned. It mattered little to him that the Heart of Gold, with its infinite improbability drive, was the most beautiful and revolutionary ship ever built. Aesthetics and technology were closed books to him, and, had he had his way, burnt and buried books as well. It mattered even less to him that Zaphod Beeblebrox was aboard. Zaphod Beeblebrox was now the ex-president of the galaxy, and though every police force in the galaxy was currently pursuing both him and this ship he had stolen, the Vogon was not interested. He had other fish to fry. 
It has been said that Vogons are not above a little bribery and corruption in the same way that the sea is not above the clouds, and this is certainly true in his case. When he heard the words integrity or moral rectitude, he reached for his dictionary, and when he heard the chink of money ready in large quantities, he reached for the rule book and threw it away. In seeking so implacably the destruction of the earth and all that therein lay, he was moving somewhat above and beyond the call of his professional duty. There was even some doubt as to whether the said bypass was actually going to be built, but the matter had been glossed over. He grunted a repellent grunt of satisfaction. Computer, he croaked, get me my brain care specialist on the line. Within a few seconds, the face of Gag Hellfront appeared on the screen, smiling the smile of a man who knew he was ten light-years away from the Vogon face he was looking at. Mixed up somewhere in the smile was a glint of irony, too. Though the Vogon persistently referred to him as my private brain care specialist, there was not a lot of brain to take care of, and it was in fact Hellfront who was employing the Vogon. He was paying him an awful lot of money to do some very dirty work. As one of the galaxy's most prominent and successful psychiatrists, he and a consortium of his colleagues were quite prepared to spend an awful lot of money when it seemed that the entire future of psychiatry might be at stake. Well, he said, hello, my captain of Vogons, Prostechnik, and how are we feeling today? The Vogon captain told him in the last few hours he'd wiped out nearly half his crew in a disciplinary exercise. Hullfront's smile did not flicker for an instant. Well, he said, I think this is perfectly normal behaviour for a Vogon, you know. The natural and healthy channeling of the aggressive instincts into acts of senseless violence. That, rumbled the Vogon, is what you always say. Well, again, said Hellfront, I think that this is perfectly normal behaviour for a psychiatrist. Good, we are clearly both very well adjusted in our mental attitudes today. Now tell me, what news of the mission? We have located the ship. Wonderful, said Hellfront, wonderful. And the occupants? The Earthman is there. Excellent, and? A female from the same planet. They are the last. Good, good, beamed Hellfront. Who else? The man Prefect. Yes, and say for Beeblebrox. For an instant, Hellfront's smile flickered. Ah, yes, he said. I had been expecting this. It is most regrettable. A personal friend, inquired the Vogon, who had heard the expression somewhere once and decided to try it out. Ah, no, said Hellfront. In my profession, you know, we do not make personal friends. Ah, grunted Vogon, professional detachment. No, said Hellfront cheerily, we just don't have the knack. He paused, his mouth continued to smile, but his eyes frowned slightly. But Beeblebrox, you know, he said, is one of the most profitable clients. He had personality problems beyond the dreams of an analyst's. He toyed with this thought a little before reluctantly dismissing it. Still, he said, are you ready for your task? Yes. Good. Destroy the ship immediately. What about Beeblebrox? Well, said Halfront brightly, Seifard's just this guy, you know. He vanished from the screen. The Vogon captain pressed the communicator button, which connected him with the remains of his crew. Attack, he said. 
At that precise moment, Zaphod Beeblebrox was in his cabin, swearing very loudly. Two hours ago, he had said that they would go for a quick bite at the restaurant at the end of the universe, whereupon he had had a blazing row with the ship's computer and stormed off to his cabin, shouting that he would work out the improbability factors with a pencil. The heart of gold's improbability drive made it the most powerful and unpredictable ship in existence. There was nothing it couldn't do, provided you knew exactly how improbable it was that the thing you wanted it to do would ever happen. He had stolen it when, as president, he was meant to be launching it. He didn't know exactly why he'd stolen it, except that he liked it. He didn't know why he'd become president of the galaxy, except that it seemed a fun thing to be. He didn't know that there were better reasons than these, but that they were buried in a dark, locked-off section of his two brains. He wished the dark, locked-off section of his two brains would go away, because they occasionally surfaced momentarily, put strange thoughts into the light, fun sections of his mind, and tried to deflect him from what he saw as being the basic business of his life, which was to have a wonderfully good time. At the moment, he was not having a wonderfully good time. He'd run out of patience and pencils and was feeling very hungry. Starpox, he shouted. At that same precise moment, Ford Prefect was in mid-air. This was not because of anything wrong with the ship's artificial gravity field, but because he was leaping down the stairwell, which led to the ship's personal cabins. It was a very high jump to do in one bound, and he landed awkwardly, stumbled, recovered, raced down the corridor, sending a couple of miniature service robots flying, skidded round the corner, burst into Zaphod's door, and explained what was on his mind. Vogons, he said. That was one in a series of Torty Talks by Simon Anthony, acting at torty.org.uk. Mm-hmm.